ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome, beloved listeners, to the Little Wireless Program coming to you from uh, from Gadigal Country. Tonight, uh, we're going to be getting up close and personal with two, uh, two interesting individuals, Polly Toynbee and Peter Frankopan. Polly is going to introduce us to her family, her famous family of uh, left-wing rabble-rousers and uh, we'll have what I hope is a, a frank conversation about class divides in both Australia and Britain. But first, let's get frank with Frankopan. He's our old friend and he's joining me here in the studio for the fourth time. In uh, 2016, I had the pleasure of welcoming a bright young academic named Peter Frankopan to the Little Wireless Program. he just published a book called uh, The Silk Road, which uh, essentially rewrote global history, pushing our focus from the West to the East. Now, since then... We've had the pleasure of uh, several encounters with uh, with Peter. Uh, most recently, last March, when we uh, spoke about how climate change has been a, a major driver of change throughout human history, the book we were discussing is his latest, titled "The Earth Transformed: a, uh, An Untold Story." Now, Peter is in Australia, so uh, I couldn't resist getting him into the studio for what will probably be our last ever on-air encounter. Great to have you, really have you, instead of a virtual Peter. Peter? Well, you know, it's it's a pleasure to be here in person. It's, it's great to do things down the line from the other side of the world, but seeing people and being able to look them in the eye, it's a great privilege. So thank you, Philip, for having, having had me on a few times. It's not your first time in Sydney, though, is it? Now, I've been here a couple of times, normally quite quick visits because usually this this comes in the middle of uh, university term time. Um, but I've had a chance this time to, to take a few extra days to spend a bit of time in Australia, which is a real pleasure. Can I invade your uh, privacy and talk about your childhood, which I find extraordinary because it involves not only the discovery that you're a cricket tragic, but <laughs> that uh, your sister could have been in an episode of The Crown. Yeah, well, I, I grew up um, in London. My my father's from a very old Croatian family. He came to Britain as a refugee at the end of the Second World War. Uh, studied hard, went to Oxford, met my mother there, who is Swedish. She's an international lawyer, uh, was doing a PhD. And we grew up in, in Britain, uh, but visiting cousins and family and friends in Italy, Germany, France throughout our childhood. And by the time I got to university, I discovered my, my mother's father's um, library of books in our house in Sweden, which are all to do with Russian novels. And I'd fallen in love with Russian literature, Russian history, Russian classical music, and was very, very lucky to go to an independent school in, in Britain that had a Russian teacher. And he was a, I mean, I don't think those kind of teachers get hired these days. He, he didn't, he'd been ex-naval intelligence, didn't particularly want to spend his life teaching teenage boys, I guess. And I can understand why having teenage sons of my own. Um, but he, so he would turn up and, and say, I'm not going to test you on your vocabulary, but I'm going to teach you how to learn a language. And I would sit there poised with my pen, quite diligent, and he would start singing. 
I need to say, if you want to understand a people or their culture or who they are, learn their songs. If you want to know what people are thinking, go and stand outside the pub at closing time and hear what people are talking about. And at the time, I thought, I might fail my exams. I probably have to learn a lot of vocabulary myself. But now I'm older, we were given huge independence to think and think for ourselves. But those kind of lessons that he taught us were, were incredibly important. Hear their songs. How interesting. Yeah, listen to their music. I mean, I still, every time I arrive anywhere, I ask the, the taxi driver or, or the bus I'm in to, to, to turn up with the music to hear our people listening to the same things um, in different parts of the world. I mean, I say that to my students first week. Uh, I said, do you think people your age in Shanghai, Cape Town, Buenos Aires... Sydney, are they listening to the same playlists as you guys? Or um, you know, and I think when you start to think like that, then then your conceptualizations of the world start to change quite quickly about thinking about how other people view their past, how other people view history, how other people view literature and music. As you said, your mother is a prominent barrister and an expert in international law. Did you ever feel the call of the law? Yeah, yeah. I think I, I don't want to say no. But I felt the call of something much stronger, so I never, I never looked in another direction. I mean, I, I fell in love with, with reading and with thinking about history, and and that was enough for me. I mean, so perhaps with another sliding doors moment, you know, I could have gone another direction. But I was very lucky. I went to Cambridge University, and I met my, my now my wife. She was my college sweetheart. And as I got to the end of my degree. I said, look, I think I should go into the real world and, and maybe at that point would have thought about the law or something else. But she said, look, you seem to both be quite good at what you do and you love it. So why don't you carry on? So We're, uh, we're going to cycle back to that in just okay. a few minutes, but I want to raise a, the subject of cricket. <laughs> you are a cricket tragic, as uh, John Howard, our ex-Prime Minister, would describe himself. Well, I love, I love, I love watching cricket. I grew up listening to cricket on an illegal radio in my my boarding school, um, and so I, I loved it when England went abroad and toured because there were time differences, so you could listen in the middle of the night. But I wasn't ever hugely good at it. But I did play twice for for Croatia, which my father's family comes from, um, about twenty years ago. And I, I didn't, I didn't uh, embarrass myself on the field, but I didn't distinguish myself either. But I, I feel very proud to have done that, partly because when I checked in at the airport, I was asked if I was an international cricketer. And, and that on its own made me grow a couple of inches in height and with pride. But. Well, that would be completely unnecessary because you're already preposterously, preposterously vertical. Now, do you still play? Well, you know what? This is a proof that both God exists and prayers get answered. So I, I started playing again about 10 years ago for a team called The Authors. And we play 20 or 30 matches a year, which I play six or seven. I'm, I have quite a busy lifestyle with work and so on. But last summer, we went on tour to Corfu for a literary festival. And I didn't want to go because I've got so much on you know, the worlds I work on that we'll talk about. They're all on the move. Uh, but slightly had to be dragged by my, my fantastic wife. And I scored, a, scored my first and only ever century against a Corfiot Invitation 11. And I, I still fall asleep every night since that day with a smile on my face. So I'm a cricket tragic and proud. What do you think it was that drew you not only to history, but Byzantine history? Well, at, uh, at Cambridge, I kept those Russian interests going. And it was a real toss-up about whether I did my PhD on... 19th to 20th centuries Russian and Soviet history, or whether I did I try to understand where, where, where Russia had come from. And I did an amazing paper in my last year with a, a scholar called Jonathan Shepard, who's gone on to become a good friend of mine. 
um, uh, called Byzantium and its Neighbours. And it explained, looked at the world from Constantinople westwards into Western Europe that I knew something about, northwards into what's now Ukraine and Russia, uh, eastwards into Baghdad, and also towards those Central Asian steppes, the sort of pre-Mongol nomads. And it was a sort of, I wouldn't say 50-50, but um, when you discover something that you love, if you can find an outlet for it. So I went to go and see uh, Dr. Shepard, Jonathan, and I said to him, look, I want to carry on. And he, he didn't quite put his head in his hands, but he looked very depressed. He said, be warned that a life of academia is unpaid. No one reads your work. It's difficult. The <laughs> knives in the, in the academy are quite sharp. And I said, I thought that you'd be pleased. And he said, no, I just want you to never say you weren't warned. Um, but so I got very lucky that I found a subject that I loved. When I went to go and do it for my PhD, I did those three elements, the Christian and Islam frontier, the pre-Mongol steppe nomads, or nomads of Central Asia, and then the formation of Kiev of what's now Ukraine and Russia. And it turns out all of those three things of the movements of Central Asia connected to China, of course, Islam and the Middle East. And they're and the they're all world. a bit urgently relevant, aren't they? Well, you know, some would say they've always been relevant, but we, we, we'd be more interested in paying attention to fat kings with lots of wives, Henry VIII, um, or to the horrors of the 20th century. And, you know, as a historian, I don't, think, I don't think you need to study history so you can understand today, but it's quite hard to understand today if you don't study history. Um, so I, I, got, I got lucky that I picked good subjects that no one else, well, not that many people were working on, and then the materials that I worked on proved to be very rewarding. So I, I managed to, to have a good start to my academic career, and, and that's paid off. Ten years ago, you published The Silk Road, which, uh, well, radically changed the way we think about uh, the ancient world. Do you think there's been a shift since you wrote the book? Uh, absolutely. I think I'm very proud of that book. You know, it's difficult to write big history. It's difficult to do it in a way that earns people's respect and that it's accurate and up close holds up. But I think that the idea that there were other parts of the world we didn't look at, we, you know, it was almost it was almost an anathema. I remember going to big literary festivals. You have walls, walls of books being sold by booksellers about the First World War or about the Second World War and about the Tudors. And I, I don't mind that. I'm not or here to... About Churchill. Well, or about Churchill. And I'm not here to say you shouldn't write them or read them. You know, And in fact, to write a really good, interesting new book about Churchill, you've got to be a really good historian because that's quite a well, well-traveled, trammeled, trammeled life. But I think what happened with Silk Roads by pointing out there are other parts of the world and that they are both interesting and important has shifted it. So now there's a, there's a whole plethora of books in the last 10 years that are recentering, thinking about how the West is a product of the East and how these connections have driven things forward. But you know, I'm not the first person to have realised that was what was going on, but it certainly caught, caught a wave at the time. I'm sitting in the studio for my fourth and sadly final conversation with uh, Peter Frankopan, who's a professor of global history at Oxford and the author most recently of his book, The Earth Transformed. As I've already suggested, you were prescient in the areas of study. They're not only... Uh, they're not only in the headlines, they are the headlines. So let's start with Russia and Ukraine. This is a war almost fundamentally about history and empire, isn't it? I mean, the firing shot 
was called in 2008 when the Russian Russians invaded Georgia, and then, of course, first invasion of Ukraine in 2014. But if you wanted to know why, how history matters, it was a, an essay that Putin wrote about six months before the invasion of 2022, where Putin wrote a long essay on the historical unity of the Russian and Ukrainian people, with a very long exposition about why and how Russia and Ukraine were brothers, and it's up to the Ukrainians to decide which world they want to be part of, and that he would never hurt a Ukrainian, and Ukraine was a sovereign state that should decide its own destiny. And then uh, a few months later, he decided to take matters into his own hands. But those questions about... Uh, how Putin has conceptualized the world are very heavily dependent on what, what he thinks history looks like. And, um, and of course, he's described the collapse of the uh, Soviet as, and I quote, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. Well, if you're Putin, that might be right. But if you're Estonian or Latvian or Kazakh or, I dare say, Ukrainian uh, or a member of the free world, I, I think that's probably wrong. But the idea that, that Putin feels that... Russia has been ganged up on by the outside world. It's something that is felt very strongly in Russia by Putin and his circle. It doesn't look to me that that's what the what, what how, how reality functions because most people want to have free presses. Most people don't want to get a knock on the door in the middle of the night. Most people want to be able to trade and move around with each other and not not fear attacks on civilian infrastructure. But but Putin has chosen a path that we're trying to work out how to best uh, contend with and push back on. And and we've done not a bad job but we haven't, haven't gone quite far enough. It fascinates me that we're seeing Russia and China becoming, well, besties. People don't begin to realise how historic this is. Well, I think that is, that is the general conception. I'm not sure I totally agree. I think that it's a transactional relationship from both sides. So we, we in the West, we're so bad, I think, at, at, at reading the subtitles. And there are lots of declarations about eternal friendships between these two peoples. But I don't think that that necessarily gets you too far hand in hand down the path towards eternal happiness. I think that the the, the story of what China want and the story of what Russia want are very different. Uh, there's, a, there's a point at which there is an elision of kind of anti-Western sentiment or anxiety about the West. But I, I don't think that either will go too far. Uh, to look after each other because it, th there's been opportunities for China to take advantage of some of the situations in Russia and and for Russia to build on the fact that China depends heavily on Russia for particularly for energy. But I, I would, I'm a little bit more uh, sober about how excitable I think this kind of access and alliance really is. You've confessed to me your love of cricket. I've got to confess to you that I was a teenage communist and uh, okay. I well remember when there was a great tension between China and, and the USSR. Yeah. Uh, you know, okay, they were both uh, connected by Marxism, Leninism, but there were also fracture lines. Well, I think Russia and China behave in very different ways. You know, China is a Marxist-Leninist state with a Politburo and a sort of central committee that sits underneath a very powerful uh, ruler in Xi Jinping and whoever might succeed him. Russia is, a, is, is like an imperial court where you have, the, you have a single czar or single emperor at the top surrounded by oligarchs who he can control in whichever way he wants. And I think that there, 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 is, a, there is a significant difference, even though there are obviously benefits to uh, making agreements with each other. And it's clear that, that Putin and, and Xi, are, they, they get on personally very well with each other. They often give each other their favourite ice creams. They're born in the same year. Uh, they've talked about their fathers a lot about how they have similar kind of backgrounds, although Xi, in fact, is the son of a high-ranking 
um, Communist Party official who was in charge of running Xinjiang province in Western China in the 50s and 60s. But they, they do get on with each other. And I think one of, the, one of the challenges in the world we live in today is that, you know, transactional, political, diplomatic relationships are done by people talking to each other face to face and at meetings and in, you know, in, in rooms uh, on, by the side of big conferences. And if people get excluded from that, then it's quite hard to have those lines of communication. And in the West, for all sorts of complicated reasons, I guess, you know, we're, we're, we're at a disadvantage for those kinds of relationships. I remember well that in our first chat, you predicted that the uh, competition between East and West for hearts, for minds, for souls and languages would, would be the big story of the next several decades. I think I'm probably right, aren't I, so far? I, so far. And, I, and that's not just China, of course, that's India. It's the same story, you know, the, the Indian century um, is something that's hugely important in, in Delhi and in, in thinking around Modi and the BJP. Uh, there's a strong story, despite the current tragedies in Gaza, there's a strong sense in lots of parts of the Middle East that this is a moment where United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, other states too, have real opportunities too. And so the East and West are quite clumsy terms. One has to work out exactly who fits into that. And are these geographical? Are they cultural? Are they religious? Are they post-colonial? And so on. But Asia, as a, as a continent, is home to 60% of the world's population. And if you're a historian and you start with the building blocks, or if you're a Marxist or a communist, you start with demographics, you start with calories, you start with water, you start with disease environments. And those kinds of things are the motors of history. And the West, if we think about global empires, uh, had a run for two or three hundred years of being able to finesse those uh, realities. But it looks like that age is well and truly over. You mentioned Gaza. How do you think about the war in Gaza, Peter? It uh, requires surely deep historical knowledge to begin to understand what's going on. Yeah, it requires knowledge to go understand what's going on. I don't think that knowledge gives any traction in the ability to change or influence the actors in, in both in Hamas or in, or in Israel. But I mean, it's a not just a humanitarian catastrophe. I think it's a scale of suffering that, that we find incomprehensible. We haven't seen for 30 years. We all thought we'd worked our way through those kinds of uh, traumas and disasters, but it, it, it's the age of warfare and fracture is back, I'm afraid. You make the point that there's a chilling parallel between the situation following uh, Hamas's October 7 attack to the situation in Europe before World War One. That is, a, you know, a, a comparatively small event triggers vast consequences. Yeah, I think that that's something that I've, I've thought a lot about because of, of engagement with the sciences for my for my work over the last 10 years. And um, things like the butterfly effect or things like in, in, in quantum physics, you know, a, a small reaction can have a massive magnitude. Anyone who's watched Oppenheimer can see that too, not just in the, the physics and the chemistry, but also in terms of what that does to the world when you drop two atomic bombs on on Japan. And I think in the same way, small, small fractures in parts of the world can, can lead to contagion quite quickly. So in 1914, the parallel that I, I tried to draw is in 1914, a British Foreign Office official had said that the world hadn't been so quiet for a long time and we were in an era of peace. And that's pretty much what a US intelligence assessment was three weeks before uh, the Hamas attacks, which is the Middle East was unusually quiet, prosperous, and people were very hopeful um, just over just a year ago, thinking about there might be a two-state solution reality, there might be pushback on West Bank settlers, there might be a way in which, which states like Saudi and UAE would be able to finesse a solution that would lead to long-term stability right across 
the Middle East. And I think that that that's well and truly finished as a as a hope, not just for the time being, but possibly forever. I've been sitting here for thirty three years, banging on again and again, hundreds of programs on on climate change and. You have, in fact, written very powerfully about it. But we tend to focus on on global warming. But you make the point that there are other, deeper issues. Well, the warming is an issue. I mean, it's not evenly distributed. But there's a whole set of environmental problems and challenges that we face in the world today. So, you know, one obvious one is air quality, which is responsible for about 18% of global deaths every year. So, you know, there's a huge number of people who die because or have shortened lives because the cardiovascular, all the kinds of things that happens when you breathe in a particulate size 2.5, um, where you are leading to contamination of your lungs. We can look at things like microplastics and how those enter the bloodstreams. And a report produced last week by one of the British medical journals shows that of the of the all the placentas that were tested of women who'd recently given birth every single one contains microplastics so the ways in which we consume the ways in which we uh, accelerate the the contamination and pollutions uh, of the seas of the grounds and the lands around us mean that you know we can we can solve all those problems through clearing up but they do have long-term consequences. And you can't stay ahead of nature because nature doesn't really care whether human beings are here in 500 years' time. You know, if you believe in the theory of evolution, as, as the world warms, that will be really bad for lots of species, but it'll be, be good for, for others and uh, unfortunately not us. As a farmer, I'm always glad to see you writing about uh, soil exhaustion. Can you explain what it is? I mean, I'll give you a historical view on that. Amongst the very, very, very first texts ever written down when writing scripts were invented about 6,000 years ago, the preoccupation of the people writing these texts, and they were writing for, so they could be preserved, was about water rights, was about the anxiety that wasn't enough to go around and you had to protect not just who had access to water, but over-salination of the soil. Because if you put too much water on the land and it evaporates uh, and leaves um, leaves behind um, salts, it kills the soil's ability to regenerate. So ideas about how we look after the land, how we look after soils, how we grow crops, how we exhaust or don't exhaust or deplete um, the basic fundamentals of how calories get provided, concerns the ability to actually feed mouths and so all those great cities in mesopotamia places like uruk and ur and Nineveh, all collapsed because the people who lived in those cities couldn't support them and particularly through their through their provision of food so soil chemistry in in the world where we have the highest ever population we've got 40 degrees has become a common temperature here in sydney and in australia we've had both the wettest year in australian history not just human history in 2022 and then terrible forest fires it means that the ability of rate of nature to regenerate and to be able to provide ecosystems that allow all the things that we want and need not just nice walks in the countryside but supporting life forms pollinators etc means that the the chances of getting things right all the time diminish and if you study history the problems come when you have food shortages you have famine and disease that follow you have inequalities that accelerate you have speculation on the prices of crops as they go up and you know in europe we've seen olive oil prices go up by three or four times in the last 18 months because we've had these temperatures where today as we sit here 80 percent of barcelona is under a state of emergency because there's not enough water in the city are there examples in history of where humans have uh, adapted effectively to uh, to huge climate change? Sure. 
Loads. I mean, there have been lots of moments in the past where there have been long periods of unusual weather conditions. Those tend to be multi-decade droughts. They tend to be uh, the ability to withstand you know, unexpected floods or cold periods that, that will make consumption of wood go up. So your ability to heat yourself is changed by... It affects your yields in agriculture. So the availability of calories has an impact on pricing, has an impact on rising inequalities and disease and so on. And there are lots of states that have been hugely resilient. My first great love, the Byzantine Empire, manages to take over for a thousand years. So if you have a well-trained uh, administration, if you know what, how to prepare for shocks... And again, if you go back to ancient history, uh, you know, that story of Joseph and his famous Technicolor Dreamcoat, as Andrew Lloyd Webber um, wrote the musical, uh, the reason why Joseph was is recorded in history and appears in, in the Old Testament is to warn that you need to be ready for those shocks. So Joseph warned the Pharaoh that in the seven years of plenty, you need to be putting aside for when the, when the famine comes. And no one else did that, but Joseph convinced Pharaoh that in the seven years of, of horror that followed, uh, he was able to feed his people. So there are loads of examples, in fact, loads of warnings, loads of examples of cases where uh, when you're confronted with shocks, you can cope. The difference of our day and age is the pace of change is so dramatically different to anything in the past. Peter, you also warn of hubris, thinking we can tame nature, don't you? And bend to our will. Well, in any other point in history, those vagaries that we've been subject to have been to do with natural weather systems. They've been to do with volcanic eruptions, the behaviour of the sun, the eccentricity of the Earth's orbit. And those shocks can be, um, they can't always be anticipated. The difference is now is that we are responsible for, for so much of those climate changes. There are lots of reasons why the, the world is warming. And there are lots of other factors, not just humans, but the way we, which we live is clearly playing a dramatic role in that and those ways in which we've accelerated both warming consumption water depletion putting a microplastics into water systems biodiversity loss mean, means that the ability to pull up in front of the red lights the, the 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 braking distance is very very short now and all of us know if you're driving at 40 or 50 miles an hour you know you, you can't you've got enough warning if you're on the motorway but if you're driving at 90 then you're in real trouble cricket's loss was history's gain and uh, as an historian do you do you think you've got you and fellow historians have a vital role to play in these well these volatile times uh, i'm probably more modest to, to, to ever think that his, historians deserve a place at a table but it is interesting that in times of change uh, there's a lot more appetite to try to learn from examples of the past. So I think that there are lots of conversations I've been brought into, for example, about futures of cities or why do cities die? How do you make sustainability work with infrastructure? What happens when you invest in public transport systems in the past and where do they go right, where do they go wrong? Those kinds of things, uh, I think the fact that we are living in a time of change means that you, you do get, I, I get asked to do that more than I would have guessed or imagined when I was uh, writing writing my, my books. But I don't think that those are conversations that I forced my way into. It's more that the, the, the appetite is there to, to come and gather and to listen to other people as well as me, of course, uh, to, to get uh, ideas from. And that's, that's very flattering, of course. Peter, tell me about the podcast you've uh, been co-hosting called Legacy. What's the premise? Well, so I do that with, uh, with, with Afro Hirsch, who's now a great friend of mine. I didn't know her so well beforehand, but to think about changing legacies of great 
and extraordinary figures from history to think about how they're received today. So people like Napoleon, um, great military hero, of course, built a French empire, but also led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of men, both on his in his armies, but also elsewhere. Hugely complicated. He, he reintroduced slavery in parts of the French empire. He is, on the one hand, a great French hero because he delivered change to France, but at the same time, he, having got with well, the French having got rid of a king and cut his head off in 1789, or the revolution 1789, end up 10 years later with an emperor, which is a step even higher than the king. So we, we try to find historical figures who have contested ways of looking at them. So we've looked at people like Pablo Picasso, who was a... Yeah, I find that an interesting choice. Well, Picasso it, was a, a bit of myth-busting here. Well, an extraordinary artist, but a, a very difficult, complicated, terrible man in his behaviour, particularly in his treatment towards women. And I think with with other figures, maybe we'll look at elsewise. You know, we all know people like Michael Jackson. You know, it's, is it okay to listen to music by someone who has allegations made against them? What does it matter? Does it matter if they've been proved in court or not? How should we think about people about were they just products of their time? So we've looked at people like Cecil Rhodes and um, Nina Simone, and also Mikhail Gorbachev. So talking about the, the about Russia here in the West, we tend to think of Gorbachev as a quite a friendly old grandfather who was trying to open up the Soviet Union and make make Perestroika and Glasnost make the Soviet space a more gentle one. The Russians think of Gorbachev as a weak, weak leader who helped steer the Soviet Union off a cliff. I once spent a weekend with Gorby and we did, did a, you? an did hour that? together when on the programme. He came to Australia and was uh, at an event in, in Brisbane. But, uh, but, you know, you talk it, to Ukrainians, you talk to Lithuanians about Gorbachev and not just because of Chernobyl. Gorbachev sent in the tanks to the Baltics to try to impose order. And so Gorbachev was, was one of these figures that we've tried to talk about, that he was a reformer, but he was incompetent in lots of ways. He was loved by people in the West, but hated by people in Russia, and in fact, hated by people in China. The model of Gorbachev is the one that has gone through the Chinese political system as the way to avoid, at all costs, what the Soviet Union did and never have a leader like Gorbachev, who became too friendly with the West. Peter, it's been a delight. My guest, Peter Frankenpan, is Professor of Global History at Oxford University and his latest book is The Earth Transformed, an untold history published by Bloomsbury. And we'll put uh, links to all our past interviews with uh, Peter in the notes to the show and we highly recommend you go and seek them out. Coming up... We get close and personal with that fine British journalist, Polly Toynbee. I have a suspicion that our next guest, uh, beloved listeners, is going to make us uh, feel a little uncomfortable and not merely because she has seen Boris Johnson naked, and not because of who she is, although she does describe her famous family as posh left-wingers, but because of what she has to say about middle-class privilege. Polly Toynbee is a columnist for The Guardian, a position she's held since, ooh, 1998. She was formerly the BBC's social affairs editor, and her journalism has won oodles of awards, including the Orwell Prize. And uh, Polly will be in Australia next month as a guest of the Adelaide Writers' Festival, where she'll be discussing her latest book, 
an uneasy inheritance, my family and other radicals. Polly, welcome to the Little Wireless Program. How radical were your forebears? They were all very radical in terms of the times when they lived. I've been back several generations. They were... Uh, began with my great-grandfather, Gilbert Murray, who came from Australia and came from an Irish background. And I think the radicalism was very much part of the Irish tradition, if you like. Um, he was always anti-colonial. Uh, he was always anti-capital punishment, pro-votes for women, um, all of the radical causes that at the time were very unpopular. He stood for election, uh, he campaigned in you know, Oxford Union debates and lost, lost and lost again. It's a story about how in their lifetimes they were minority radicals and had to get used to losing. And if I could show them how life is now, I think they'd be amazed at how many battles they won. Polly, I, I recall him being a mate of uh, Bertrand Russell, my childhood hero. He was a, a cousin of my great-grandmother and very much of that tradition. I mean, I remember when he was very, very old and he was running the most radical element of the campaign for nuclear disarmament and lying down in the street in his 90s and being arrested. He was very much of that tradition. Tell me about Sir Terence Murray, the, uh, the first colonial politician to campaign against well, both the transportation of convicts and three cheers of the death penalty. Yes, he was uh, very radical for his time. He also organised the collection of uh, local languages from the um, native Australians and was the only person who was really interested in them and a great supporter of, of their rights, despite the fact that he had this colonial role and he became a you know, the Speaker of the New South Wales Parliament and um, was very much an official figure, but not very much in tune with the times in Australia. He was a uh, radical vegetarian. <laughs> my my great-grandfather was uh, a vegetarian and a teetotaler. And an <laughs> atheist, bless his heart. And an atheist, head of the, 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 the humanists. And um, I think... Also, the teetotal came from his father. Terence pretty much died of drink. And all the way through the family, they seem to be temperance, alcoholics, temperance, alcoholics. <laughs> well, I am in awe of Arnold Toynbee, the world-famous historian. Yes, indeed. That's my, my grandfather who married into that, that Murray family and was very much also uh, a great internationalist, um, a passionate supporter of you know, the United Nations, the League of Nations, constantly disappointed by the way the world worked out. He was at the um, he was there at the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, which he was strongly against because he thought the Germans were made to pay much too high reparations and it would lead to another war, which of course it did. But he was always also rather on the losing side of being an optimist about world peace uh, at a time when it wasn't fashionable. And in the year of your birth, his uh, face was on the cover of time. Well, yes, indeed. He was a bit like Say Fukuyama, he became a great sort of fashionable historian, taken up by the Americans in a big way, partly because he was um, such a prophet of the, the rise of the 
East and the fall of Europe. And so I think there were a lot of people in America who liked the idea that you know, America and and further eastwards were the, the, the future and that, uh, you know, Europe was in decline. Tell me about your uh, maiden great aunt, Jocelyn Toynbee. Oh, well, my family is simply full of professors. I mean, Gilbert was a Regis professor of Greek at Oxford. Jocelyn Toynbee was professor of archaeology at Cambridge. And their younger sister, Margaret, was only a don, so they rather looked down on her for being... <laughs> now, your, fa- your father, I love him because he was the, uh, the first ever commo president of the Oxford Union. Uh, he was a he was a communist up until 1939, and they hit the Stalin Pact, when a whole lot of people marched out of the Communist Party at that point, and was never a communist again. He was always a radical. He was a founder of the campaign for nuclear disarmament. He was a a great protester and campaigner. He then became a sort of early ecologist in a way and could see that the world would starve if wool went on eating meat. So he became a vegetarian and he founded an agricultural commune with his house, uh, giving it away to uh, a commune of a whole lot of people who increasingly just turned out to be kind of hippies crashing out and were not much interested in doing the digging necessary for an agricultural commune. And the thing fell apart in absolute disaster. But it was a very ideological, a very idealistic idea. Um, Well, take the the C&D on its own. Heavens above, the scale of those marches was immense. Absolutely. I went on them from from age 14 onwards. They were absolutely vast. did they have any impact? It's hard to know. I mean, here we are still with uh, nuclear weapons, if anything, proliferating. Um, we've become afraid by other things instead. Perhaps we're more afraid of uh, the climate crisis now than we are of uh, nuclear destruction. But it was you know, very much in his mind. He was a bit of a millennialist, really. He always believed the world was going to come to an end one way or another. I mean, here's an example of how passionately he felt fear of nuclear holocaust when we went on holiday to wales we had to turn around in the car and come back again because he'd forgotten the large jar of suicide pills he kept to kill us all in case the bomb dropped because we'd all read neville shoots on the beach we all knew the effects of strong and how horrible death would be from radiation sickness so he always had these suicide pills with us. We eyed them with a certain amount of alarm. Where do you think your dynasties, uh, pro-liberal, anti-conservative bent came from? You can't seem to identify many in the working class. Absolutely not. Uh, this is a story about being middle-class radicals, about being middle-class on the left, and the embarrassments and sometimes the rather comic situations and how to deal with the awkwardness. And then there, people always attack us as being champagne socialists or, you know, if you're so socialist, why don't you give everything away with the idea that unless you're Mahatma Gandhi, you, uh, you know, you're corrupt or you're, you're hypocritical. And this is a book really exploring that because lots of people write wonderful books about coming up from nowhere and how they've you know made it in their lives. Um, but I don't think people write very often about 
being middle class, about being born privileged, understanding it and coping with it. Because if you're on the left, you do feel embarrassed. I have no idea what my life would have been like if I hadn't been born with every educational privilege and encouragement. If I'd been born working class, I have no idea. So there's always a temptation for middle class people to seek their working class roots to prove they've made it on their own merit. So I had a good look. Uh, I rummaged through everything I could find about my family. I couldn't find one single working class route, not one, not a twig, not a branch, nothing. Uh, there was a an Australian uh, great-great-grandmother who'd been a governess, and I thought, ah, oh, maybe her. But no, she came from a very educated family had who'd run out of money and come down in the world. So nope, I can't claim to have made it on my own merit in any way. There's a Toynbee Hall in uh, London's East End named in honour of your uh, grandfather's uncle. Tell me about him and some of the uh, the do-gooders who, uh, who visited there. It's a very remarkable place. It was called after me. He was a social worker in the East End, but he was also um, an academic at Oxford and he... he uh, invented the word industrial revolution. He was very interested in You're workers. You're kidding, work. really? Yes, he did. He um, very interested in, in, in workers' rights and in promoting the cause of trade unions and was a great uh, organiser in the East End, um, but died incredibly young. And so his friends, who were Henrietta and Samuel Barnett, who were also great reformers, set up Toynbee Hall in his name. And it is there it is now. It's a rather odd place because it looks like a little miniature Oxford college and inside it has all the heraldry from all the Oxford colleges which is a bit peculiar for the East End but it was very much the fashion of the time for universities to set up what they call settlements in poor areas to try and uh, help people and actually Toynbee Hall remains to this day a really important community centre. It provides these days for particularly Bangladeshi families who live around there, um, English teaching and courses of all kinds. We, we um, have to record the fascinating fact that uh, Lennon spoke there in 1902. It's amazing how many people have spoken there. Uh, Clement Attlee worked there for quite a long while and said that's where he learnt his socialism. William Beveridge, who was the founder of our welfare state, was one, one of the leaders there as well. So it's always been a great sort of breeding ground for intellectual radicals to go and work and understand about worlds of poverty. Your book is not just a memoir. It's also a reflection on uh, on what you describe as the angst of the middle class, uh, oh, the middle class left. Talk to me about that. Well, I think it's exploring my own feelings about spending most of my life writing about social issues, being social affairs editor of the BBC, endlessly writing about social problems, about poverty, about housing, about health, all of those things, and being very aware of my own privilege and how do you cope with those things. I think the answer is you do what you can wherever you are. Uh, you know, you might give away some of your wealth or you might just spend your time campaigning and writing about or uh, as best you can to alert people to what happens in the real world. And it is, after all, the middle class people who have most influence and you have to use your influence wherever you are. 
you also but, tackle issues like philanthropy the, and the paradoxes involved in that. Well, philanthropy is often the excuse for the very, very rich saying, well, we earn these huge salaries in the city because we can give away some money. Well, a lot of them don't give away much money. And per capita, they give away a much lower proportion of their earnings than the poor do. The poor give away much more. But never mind, it, it's still sizable sizeable amount of money is raised from philanthropy. But I don't think that's a, a good excuse for why we should have such grotesque inequality between uh, those earners. I mean, we, we put together a focus group of people who were highest earners in the city, the city lawyers and the city bankers, some of them earning up to 10 million. We had a focus group together with a professor from the London School of Economics and asked them what they thought people earned. They had no idea. Here were the people running our money. They had no idea what the benefit levels were and no idea they what... Uh, other people earn. They thought that most people were on the higher rate of tax, only 10% people are. And they said, oh, well, everybody we know. Well, yes, everybody they know. They find it very hard to believe that you know the great majority of the population were earning something that they regard as a as a poverty wage. So this non-understanding, this ignorance from top to bottom is something I suppose that is what I write about and hope to reach out to those people, tell them how society really looks and how ignorant they are. Now, you've written several books, of course, but uh, this one took you 10 years. How come? Well, I wasn't quite sure where it was going. Writing a memoir is quite difficult in that it has to have a point and a purpose. And I wanted to combine a social history of what's happened through the last, you know, three, four generations of my family, what's happened socially and what happened to them, but also about where we are now and how we got here. And I wasn't quite sure how to combine the personal and the often quite comic stories because everybody's family is full of all sorts of curious characters and curious events. Um, how to blend the two. So it took me a long time to weave the two together and also to do the research necessary. And uh, I think in the end, I've managed to do that. It is about both the way we live now and about uh, my family. You started writing the book after making a, uh, a series for Radio 4. Is there a connection? Certainly. It was uh, a programme for Radio 4 called The Class Ceiling, about how class works now, about how we're going backwards in terms of social mobility. Birth is destiny more now than it was when I was born, which would certainly have shocked all of my relatives. Um, and in the course of doing that, the producer said, well, you've got to talk about your own background. I have never written till this book anything personal, whatever. I've always written about, you know, social conditions of one kind or another, written about the NHS, I've written about all sorts of subjects, but never myself or my family. So I was very contorted by this and said, no, no, I don't want to talk about myself. And he, the producer said, but you must explain your own social background. So I then had to confess maybe they would have known from my voice anyway on Radio 4, that I was very middle class, had always been middle class, was born privileged. And that got me thinking and I thought, well, write about this. People don't fess up to it. Uh, you know, write, write about how it is to be born with a silver spoon, to be born with everything given to you. It's um, very much warts and all though, isn't it? Because uh, you've already mentioned the alcoholism and there were 
you cite cases of depression and, quote, nervous vapours. It's a degree of candour that doesn't distress any of your family. Have you angered some of your relatives? Oh, not at all. Everybody knows about this. And also, it's been written about before and in certain ways. Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, my father struggled with drink all his life, and so did his brother. Um, and I think uh, you have to be honest about those things. I think most families have alcoholism in them somewhere, and it certainly seems to ripple all the way through mine, as I say, combined with extreme temperance. I think one may lead to the other one way or another. Tell me about Rosalind. Oh, that's my wicked grandmother. She's the only character who's really bad in the book. I think every every good book needs a villain, and that's her. She was a poisonous character who rebelled against her Murray relatives, against their uh, Puritanism, against their uh, idealism, and did everything she could, really, to offend them. Uh, she even converted to Catholicism, which for my my great grandfather, who was you know, head of the humanists, was very shocking. But she treated her children abominably well. She badly. She was very, very snobbish, arrogant, unpleasant in every kind of way. And the great hypocrisy was that she was always very disapproving of anybody in the family who strayed in any way. I had a cousin who had a, a child outside uh, wedlock, and she never spoke to her again. After she died. Her diaries turned up, which showed that she had been living with an ex-monk with the wildest sex life going on. <laughs> and for hypocrisy, you couldn't it. There are so many famous names. We've mentioned, uh, of course, Bernard Shaw. There's all, there's Evelyn Waugh, Bertrand Russell of Loving Memory, Churchill's a nephew. Ah. Uh, and there's also Jessica Mitford, Rudyard Kipling, Gandhi, Einstein, for heaven's sake, Lawrence of Arabia, on and on the, uh, you know, the, the credits roll. Uh, you must be astonished by, by the roll call. Well, it was, and I think I found out a lot of this as I went along, that my great-grandfather Gilbert was a very sociable character, but also because he was... A, president of the League of Nations in, in, in Britain, um, was a great entertainer of all of these kinds of people and had them to stay with him in his house outside Oxford and, and knew them all very well. And they were all people who were, again, campaigning for great international causes, particularly anti-colonialism, which was a great passion of his hatred of the empire and of the colonial attitudes. I have to ask you about uh, your encounter with the nude Boris Johnson. Well, yes, when I was very young, or just before I was going to Oxford, I was going out with Boris Johnson's uncle, very nice man. Um, it was a sad story. I got pregnant. I had an abortion. Uh, it was. It was quite tragic. But I always feel that if you've had an abortion, you should say so because. Lots of women have had abortions and it doesn't do you any harm and it's a very important freedom in your life to decide when or not to have children. But in the course of going out with him, uh, he took me to visit his sister who just had Boris. And there was Boris lying on a bath mat, very fat, very pink, uh, quite noisy, uh, a shock, a shock of bright yellow hair. And I must say, having a look at him 
also encouraged me the idea that this was not a time for me to have a baby, and I didn't like the look of him much. You write about, uh, well, you write in the book that the class system in Britain holds sway more now than ever before. Is that possible? Well, people often um, judge it by habits or the fact that people often wear the same clothes or uh, mannerisms. What really matters is the level of social mobility. It is now, without doubt, and all the research shows so, less likely that somebody from a working class background will escape from that. It is less likely that somebody from a middle class background will slide down the ladder birth is destiny more than it was. And it's very shocking. People find that quite hard to believe because the convention is, oh, we're all classless now, you know. But, of course, it just isn't true. Um, you know, if you're working class, you go to a not very good school in a quite poor area, your chance of making it to university is still very much less. I mean, it's more than it was because we have so many more university places. But proportionately, it's still quite low. The programme spends a lot of time worrying about uh, UK politics and uh, I'm wondering how you think class will play out in the upcoming election. Well, I think it I think it does matter. I think there was a sudden great surge under Boris Johnson and Brexit. Brexit was the great deception. It told working class people, you know, a lot of your problems are Europe when in fact our problems are our own and our own social structures and our own unjust tax system. So um, I think those people who did vote strongly for Brexit and for Boris realised that they were fooled and they're all going to swing back this time, according to the polls. Polly, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the programme. It's just been terrific. And Polly will be in Australia next month as a guest of the Adelaide Writers Festival, where, yes, she will be discussing her latest book, An Uneasy Inheritance, My Family and Other Radicals, published by Alan and Unwin and Atlantic Books. Thanks, Polly. That's a lot for the week. Thanks to the team, E.P. Anna Whitfield, producers Catherine Zengara, Taryn Bradko, back from her wedding, Ian Coombe, Claudette Worden, Jack Schmidt and Julie Street. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.